thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Dr Kat. I'm here this week to present my highlights from our shows throughout the year and I hope you enjoy my selections. Coming up later, we'll be hearing how researchers are getting ever closer to developing a bionic man. There is a, a lot of application in biomedical research. One particular project we're looking at is how to make prosthetic skin, so a skin that a patient who's lost a limb, for example, could uh, a skin that they could wear just like a glove, so they would wear this um, on top of a prosthetic limb, and the skin will allow, would allow them to get some sensory feedback, which is not possible today. Alan Titchmarsh explains why the humble garden pond is important as a thriving ecosystem. If you think of the things within the landscape that use a pond, from birds coming down to drink, hedgehogs and mammals coming down to drink, the pond life that's in the depths there and in the shallows, from pond skaters and water boatmen to newts, frogs, toads, damselflies, dragonflies, you start to build up this list and you think, all that just from a little patch of clean water and that's the vital thing. And the answer is yes, and anybody can make one. And Ben and Dave get experimental with party food, exploring the science of fruit jelly. Well, it looks like perfect jelly, really. It's firm. It's, in fact, I shall have a bit myself. It's firm. It's set properly. It's, uh, it's very lemony. It's very good. Plus, developments in cancer treatment, how new diseases emerge, musical mosquitoes, stabbing potatoes and getting funky in the studio. That's all coming up, and if you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments about my selection, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. One interview that really got under my skin was back in February when we spoke to Stephanie Lacour from the Cambridge Nanoscience Centre. She's working on making flexible electronics that can be worn over or even under the skin. It's exciting stuff, bringing the prospect of the bionic man a step closer to reality. Here's the interview. So what we're trying to do is to interface electronic component with the human body. And one of the challenges is that um, conventional electronics is typically made on very hard and flat surfaces. And if you look at our own body, we are a 3D object that is moving all around. So the challenge is not only electronic, but electrical, but also mechanical, because we need to find ways to make electronics that can conform the body and therefore use material that are no longer hard and brittle, but materials that can be elastic, just similar to our own skin, for example. So kind of bionic man type thing. Yeah, think about a six million dollar <laughs> man, basically. What are the sort of challenges? Um, what do you need to make electronics do to make them like skin? Well, there are two challenges. The first one is to find ways to put electro active electronic component onto substrate that are very soft. And um, so the electronics processes that are available today are usually using fairly high temperature to deposit this material. And the substrate we're using to make skin-like uh, devices are polymers. In particular, we're working with materials called elastomers. So they're very bendy. It's like a rubber band yeah. material. And these materials don't withstand very high temperature. So we need to find processes to deposit the device material at very low temperatures, typically below 150 degrees C's. So that's one challenge. And then once we've found a way to deposit this material directly on the soft material, we have to find good design or architecture for the overall system so that the electronic can withstand the mechanical deformation. So it's one thing to actually deposit the materials on to the soft substrate, but we also want to make sure the transistor is still working when we're pulling onto the, the structure. Because obviously transistors are made of things like silicon and you don't think of that as being very flexible. How are you trying to get around this problem? So the approach we're following is to distribute onto the very soft substrate tiny platforms that would be rigid. 
And this tiny platform would host a very fragile material like the silicon for the transistors. And once you have this sort of pixel structure all across the elastomer, we would need to use very, very elastic interconnect to connect one platform to the other so that they can talk together. And so what we found a few years ago, I found a way to make stretchable metal by depositing very, very thin layers of gold directly onto an elastomer, so on a rubber band, I found that I can stretch it up to twice its length and it will not fail electrically. So from there, we've decided to push forward the technology and use this stretchable metal as interconnect for electronics. So basically, you've got an elastic band covered with gold with all these kind of little transistors studded into it and they'll communicate with each other. Yes, exactly. And so what sort of applications do you see for this kind of technology? Well, I'm particularly interested in there is a a lot of application in biomedical research. One particular project we're looking at is how to make prosthetic skin. So a skin that a patient who's lost a limb, for example, a skin that they could wear just like a glove. So they would wear this on top of a prosthetic limb and the skin would allow them to get some sensory feedback, which is not possible today. So So they'd be able to feel sort of how hard they were touching something or how hot and cold it was. Exactly. So we're trying to implement various sensors directly onto this rubbery substrate like um, temperature or touch sensors so that we can mimic sensory functions that are embedded in our own skin. And how, how are things going at the moment? What sort of stage are we at with this uh, We're at a very infancy stage. So at the moment, we know how to make stretchable metal. So we're investigating how we can implement these to make strain and touch sensors. We're also evaluating how to make the transistors directly onto these rubbery substrate with the platforms. So we're just starting. So And presumably a big issue is trying to make all this electronics talk to the human brain, which is, well, it is nerves and electrical impulses. Right. That must be a big challenge. So this is the, the sort of the second aspect of the project. So in my group, we're looking at ways to make this prosthetic skin, but there's also application where we're looking at ways to use these very soft electronic devices to interface directly with the nervous system. And so, again, the human body, and in particular the nervous system, is made of extremely compliant material. We cannot use a silicon chip to interface directly a nerve for a long time. So what we're doing is to use this polymeric and elastomeric substrate with embedded electrodes in it to connect directly with a peripheral nerve, so a nerve that is in the limb, not in the spinal cord or the brain, but really in the limb, and see how we can pick up electrical signal from the, from the neurons. Once we can do that, then the idea would be to connect this peripheral nerve implant directly to the prosthetic skin so that uh, we could take the signals that are coming out of the prosthetic skin, convert them into a neuron format, if you want, and then feed that directly into the implant, which would then communicate to the nerve and then back to the brain. It sounds like really exciting stuff. Presumably you have a a very multidisciplinary team, so you have to bring a lot of different people together. What, What sort of range of scientists are working on this kind of technology? So... I'm an electrical engineer by training, but in the team we have people who are material scientists, biophysicists, neurosurgeons. In particular for the the project onto the peripheral nerve implant, I'm working with lots of people here in Cambridge and in a couple of other universities in the UK. So it's extremely important to have a collaboration between engineers and the medical field. For a good collaboration, we really could not do that. And the old question is, you know, wh- when do you think we might see the bionic <laughs> bionic man? Um, not tomorrow. <laughs> so it will take a, a very, a, quite a long time. I think we f- surely along the way we'll have some devices that will have short clinical application. But uh, the long, the final project, probably 25 years or so. That's Stephanie Lacour from the Cambridge Nanoscience Centre, bringing the bionic man or woman one step closer to reality. During the hours of daylight, I work for Cancer Research UK, a large charity dedicated, obviously, to cancer research. I've always got an eye open for stories about cancer breakthroughs in the media, but so often they're overhyped PR stories about superfoods or very early lab research that's being sold as an amazing breakthrough. In October 2008, Cassian Yi and his team at the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Centre in the US published an impressive paper explaining how they'd managed to use the power of the immune system to successfully treat a man with cancer. Dr Chris spoke to him to find out more about this important breakthrough. How does this technique to re-persuade the immune system to attack someone's tumour work? Uh, we use a process as known as adoptive immunotherapy and that involves collecting uh, white blood cells, the cells that you mentioned can fight infection, but can also fight tumor. And taking from um, these white blood cells a population of cells known as T cells, 
which specifically recognize the patient's tumor cells. In the lab, we can isolate those rare T cells that can recognize and kill the melanoma cells because the melanoma cells express a target antigen. And if we can expand enough of these T cells, we actually clone them into single cells, but if we can expand enough of these T cells and infuse them back into the patient, it's hoped that they can travel to the melanoma site and then recognize and eradicate the tumor cells. So Cassian, why don't the T cells, if the patient's already got them to start with and you're just increasing the numbers, why don't they go in there and wipe out the tumor for the patient without any help from you? Yeah, so that's a very good question. For a long time, people felt that, well, perhaps these cells do exist in the body. And it turns out that using uh, specialized techniques to detect these cells, they are present, but in uh, very low numbers. And I think you mentioned earlier in the program that the body sometimes suppresses the immune response against normal cells. And part of this suppressive mechanism may prevent these T cells from recognizing tumors as well. So using this process of adoptive therapy, we're able to isolate these cells outside the lab and expand them without the um, constraints that might be present in the body that uh, limit their expansion against the tumor cells. Now, on top of that, the tumor cells themselves have evasive mechanisms. They uh, find ways to prevent the immune system from revving up and recognizing them by releasing uh, suppressive factors or by co-opting immune suppressor cells to prevent the immune system from recognizing and expanding them. So by taking them out of that environment and putting back in and expanded numbers, we may be able to uh, override some of these immune escape mechanisms. Now, one of the interesting things about treating cancers is that when you start to treat them, because cancers are already genetically deranged, in other words, their genetic material is all over the place, this means that cancers are not all the same and therefore some cells will be killed by certain therapies, others will disguise themselves, look a bit different, and they escape therapy because they evolve ways of, of being unresponsive to the drugs and so on and so forth. So why doesn't that happen here? Why don't you end up with a clone of cancer cells that aren't recognized by these immune T cells you're putting back in and therefore they escape and bring the cancer back? Uh, yeah, so that's a very good question, and that is one of the major obstacles for immune therapy or any type of uh, specific therapy. Actually, we, we did originally do the study with one type of T cell, the CDA T cell, and found that that happened in some of our patients where, as you say, the, the tumor cell somehow was able to evade detection by suppressing expression of the antigen that was recognized by the T cell. But in this case, we used a different type of T cell, a CD4 T cell. And this T cell not only may kill the tumor cell directly, by recognizing this antigen, but it may also recruit to the tumor site other immune cells that can kill it in a nonspecific fashion. So once the CD4 T cell, which we've expanded in the lab and given back to the patient, uh, goes to the tumor site, the CD4 T cell may release other, uh, we call them chemokines or cytokines, that bring to the tumor site other immune effector cells, which may kill the tumor nonspecifically, regardless of whether they express the antigen that was targeted in the first place or not. So by bringing to bear other immune effector cells, we may be able to uh, eradicate tumor cells whether they express the original targeted antigen or not. Now, one thing we did find in the paper in some of our patients is that uh, when this happened, the tumor cell breaks down because the CD4 T cell is present and causes an inflammatory response. Other antigens are brought to light and the body's own immune response takes over and starts to direct its own T cells that we didn't grow in the lab, but its own T cells that were already there to expand and grow and kill other target on the tumor cell. And what's the risk, having just said what you've said, that you might end up with inappropriate attack? So in other words, if you look at certain diseases like thyroid disease or rheumatoid arthritis or certain types of diabetes, that's where the immune system is inappropriately attacking healthy tissue. If you're priming the immune system like that and then getting this spillover to other bits of the immune system, what's the danger that, or is there a danger that you might get an autoimmune disease and instead of just attacking tumors, these cells then start attacking something else that you don't want them to hit? Well, that's a very good question. In part, that might be uh, limited by the local effect where the uh, initial homing, I guess, or trafficking of, of the T cells that we gave to the uh, patient end up expanding. So that uh, local inflammatory process where we've targeted the tumor specifically may set up sort of an inflammatory environment that causes an immune reaction to occur. But that's not to say that some of these cells can't travel to other sites and cause some autoimmunity. And in fact, we have seen some autoimmunity in patients where some of the target antigens on the cells are also expressed by normal cells. So in the case of melanoma, some of these targets are the pigmented proteins, so whatever responsible for the coloration on your skin, so that when we start killing the tumor cells, some of these T cells may also end up killing normal pigmented skin cells, and then we see a whitening, a sort of a lightening color on normal skin. And that type of autoimmunity is not too toxic. It's, it's still relatively safe 
terms of patient discomfort. But uh, when we see this, we also recognize that these patients have a high likelihood of responding as well to the immunotherapy because what's happening in the normal cells is also happening to the tumor. So, so you're right, there is some autoimmunity, but we think a lot of it is concentrated where the initial inflammatory reaction occurs. Certainly impressive stuff. It's early days, but researchers around the world are working on ways to harness this power of the immune system and turn it on cancer. And that story was important proof that it can work, which is really reassuring for scientists working in this area. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Kat, and this week I'm taking you through some of my favourite bits of Naked Science. It's been impossible to ignore the news about swine flu, or pig flu, as I like to call it, but is a new strain of flu really going to bring about the viral apocalypse that wipes out the human race? In December, we did a show on emerging diseases, and it scared the life out of me, frankly. Chris interviewed Bob Swanepoel from the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa. It really served to highlight the fragility of the human race in the face of a deadly virus, particularly now the world's a much smaller place. Chris started by asking Bob about the case of a woman who'd come down with a nasty infection. So tell us what happened with this case. Tell us a bit about the history. Well, this was a travel agent, a 36-year-old lady who worked in Lusaka. And unfortunately, shortly after she got ill, I mean, you know, the beginning of diseases are always relatively mild to what happened subsequently. But shortly after she got ill, two days later, she went down to, from Lusaka to a wedding in South Africa and then went back. And so there was some confusion about whether she actually picked up the infection in South Africa or in Lusaka. What were the symptoms yeah. she was complaining of? Well, initially, all of these things, I mean, if you talk about Ebola or any of these neurodegenerative or severe diseases, people start off very nonspecific, uh, the same way influenza starts with headache and muscle pains and just not feeling well. And she was taking sort of pills for headache and that sort of thing. And then uh, she went down to the wedding in South Africa and she returned on the Sunday evening. And, and from the Monday, she was feeling extremely ill and, and didn't go back to work at all and saw several doctors in time. And by the Friday, she was medically evacuated from South Africa, and the following day, she died here. And what was the cause of death? What normally happens is people who are extremely ill, whether it be Ebola or anything else, the picture is very similar to, say, even a bacterial infection, a so-called septicemia. It could be typhoid, could be meningococcal septicemia. So clinically, the clinicians do the right thing. They, they pump these people full of antibiotics in order to save life. But the trouble is then, if you do a blood culture to try and diagnose the illness, you're not going to find the answer because there's all those antibiotics. And so people die off of one-off, shall we say, illnesses like that in every city in the world every day. So there was nothing sort of deemed to be unusual about her death. She, she was deemed to be a, a bacterial septicemia and no results were obtained and her, her, her body was sent back. So how did you find out that it was something unusual? Well, it was only a two weeks later when a paramedic who had flown down in the air ambulance with her, ended her, flew down and, and with the same symptoms, was also medically evacuated that people put two and two together, you know, realized there was something unusual. And that's often the case. And it's only when there's cumulative evidence. And so when the second person came down and that person developed the same symptoms and then happened to be admitted to the same hospital and a day later, women recognized, look, this looks identical to the first one. And can you tell us what the actual organism was that they were suffering from, and where do you think it came from? Well, it's, it's, this whole group of organisms are, are known to be associated with rodents. They cause chronic infection in rats and mice of various species. Each of these viruses tends to be associated with a particular rat species or rodent species. Mice. So how do you think the lady got it from the rat? Huh, that's a big question yet to be answered. There was a lot of confusion initially. Did it arise in Zambia or did she become sick in South Africa? But we believe it was Zambia. And one of the things is around the circle, there's been an increase in wheat farming. People have planted more acreage because the price has gone up and so on. And, and that's the sort of thing that happens in nature or, or human intervention, that we create a bonus situation for rats and mice and, and there's all this wheat around and grain crops and there's a population explosion and maybe that had something to do with it. And Bob, just to finish off, could you tell us very, very briefly, um, what, what can you do about this in future, and what's the likelihood of it recurring? Well, I, I suspect it will recur, and it's just that we'll be you know, better geared up next time to recognize it. I think even 
in Zambia, the physicians are, are, are really good and, and they will recognise. So the lesson is to stay away from rats and hope your doctors can spot the signs of any nasty diseases before they kill us all. Anyway, one of my favourite parts of the show is kitchen science, and for me, it's the simple experiments that are often the most impressive. In January 2009, Dave saw in the new year with an experiment that's over 100 years old, but explains something we see in modern day life when we polish a TV set or when you sneeze on your computer monitor. Dave explained to me what we needed to do, and do listen out for my apparent obsession with pork pies. Okay, this is a really, really simple kitchen science. All you need is a little bit of water, a bit of plastic, the kind of clear plastic which you sometimes get in packaging or in the inside of a lemonade bottle, that sort of stuff. That looks like the, the tray from some pork pies or something. Yeah, got that's there. Something, I think it's actually yeah. a tray from some, bits, some posh, rather nice biscuits I got over Christmas. Not pork pies. Not pork pies. Okay, what do we do with our, our pork pie tray? Okay, so basically you want to cut a piece out of this pork pie tray, sort of maybe a couple of centimetres wide and four or five long. Okay. So I'll just do that quickly. Again, all blue Peter, yeah. Uh, I haven't got one I made earlier. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we've got this bit of plastic. Yep. And then all you need to do is get a little bit of water on the end of your finger. Or it maybe has to be clear plastic. Clear so you can plastic, see through yeah, it, yeah. see through plastic. Put a sort of blob of water on the end. If it isn't very round, like the one I just did, try, keep trying until you get a nice circular blob of water. That one's not too bad. Okay, you've got, yeah, so a nice little round, that's about... Half a centimetre in diameter? Yeah, so five or six centimetres is a good yeah. one to start with. Then look at things through it, basically. You, get, so you might have to get your eyes very close to it, very close to an object, put it quite close to an object and have a look through it. Later on in the show, Dave explained to me how it all worked and what we should be seeing. I was genuinely impressed. Have a look at okay. this. This is our script here. OK, have so I've got my script, I've got a piece of plastic, and I'm holding it right up my eye, right up to the blob and right on there. Oh, my goodness! So, like, the letters, I can see through the drop of water, the letters are really, really big. Like, it's magnified them. Yeah, basically, we've built a magnifying glass. Out uh, of just water just, and some pork pie tray. <laughs> just out of water and a pork pie tray, that's right, Kat. How uh, does that work, then? OK, basically, light goes a little bit slower in water than it does in air. And if you imagine a car will go slower over sand than the road, so if you're driving on a road and your left-hand wheel goes into the sand, it'll slow down and turn in towards the sand. So, basically, when the light hits the water, it's going to turn around a corner as it enters it, and when it leaves, it'll speed up again and then turn back again. Because it's curved, that means the light ends up bent. And it just so happens with a smooth curve with a droplet of water like that, it bends the light in such a way as it makes it look like there's a bigger object there than there actually is. So it's acting like a lens, really, like a tiny little lens. It is a tiny little lens. In fact, these were the first really good quality microscopes which were built by a guy called Anthony van Leeuwenhoek. We had a little brass plate and a little tiny, almost spherical glass lens, very likely a droplet of water in the middle of it. And by looking, it's quite difficult to use to get really high magnifications, but he managed to get a magnification about 200 times, get very, very close up to things, and he actually was the first person to see bacteria. First person to see microbes. In about 1683, he was looking very closely at some of the plaque from one of his mate's teeth. <laughs> and he saw little creatures like swimming around in it. Unfortunately, he didn't associate it with disease. And it took another couple of hundred years until Louis Pasteur in the 19th century worked this out. And no one really believed him that he'd seen these things because it was very difficult to use this microscope. Now, earlier we were talking about uh, when I sneezed on the monitor. And it kind of looks funny. If you sneeze on a computer monitor, you get little droplets of water. Is, is that the same thing that's exactly going the same on thing. here? I'll, blob some water on don't tell the bbc <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can see it kind of looks weird under you, where the droplets you can see are little multi, almost little rainbows under the droplets mm. um, what's going on here is that you're basically magnifying the screen quite large maybe a factor of 10 or 20 especially you get very small droplets on a screen there's three different colors there's red green and blue and there's different amounts of those colors add up to give all the colors in the rainbow and so, basically, you're magnifying little blobs of red, green and blue, and you can actually see the separate ones. Yeah, you can see them, can't you? Little, I've got little stripes in there. That's why everything goes rainbowy when you sneeze on your monitor. Enough talk of snot, and let's turn our attention to something much more pleasant. Housewife's favourite TV gardener, Alan Titchmarsh. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to meet Alan, along with Jeremy Biggs from the charity Pond Conservation, at the launch of the charity's Million Ponds project. I curbed my swooning for just long enough to ask Alan why ponds are such an important important part of our environment. The greatest thing about ponds is that for something so relatively small, the wildlife that they support is absolutely huge. If you think of the things within the landscape that use a pond, from birds coming down to drink, hedgehogs and mammals coming down to drink, the pond life that's in the depths there 
and in the shallows from pond skaters and water boatmen to newts, frogs, toads, damselflies, dragonflies. You start to build up this list and you think, all that just from a little patch of clean water and that's the vital thing. And the answer is yes, and anybody can make one. It is so simple, you can do it in an afternoon, make a small pond, take charge of it, make it clean. And you think, well, hang on a minute, how am I going to introduce all that wildlife to it? You don't have to, it will come. The most astonishing thing is that all that wildlife finds you of its own accord. Have you noticed the quality of ponds changing over recent years? And it's not just the quality of ponds, it's the amount of ponds. We're losing numbers of ponds that are disappearing. I'm lucky enough to, have a, to live in a village which has a village pond, which is fed by a natural stream, so it's wonderful. You know, it, it stays clean. Um, but they are disappearing. They get filled in. Um, they get polluted. That's the, one of the most difficult things, with runoff from farmland and nitrates. Our clean ponds are now very few in number. I think it's about 80% of our, of our ponds are no longer clean. But there, it's not difficult to put that right, and I think that's the great appeal of uh, Million Ponds, is the fact that we can address this quite easily, relatively quickly, and also quite economically. How, how would someone go about digging a pond? What would be your top tips for them? People tend to make ponds either too small when they heat up like saucepans do uh, on a hot summer's day, or too deep, strangely enough. They think a pond's got to be about four feet deep. No, 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 no. 18 inches in the middle is ample. I mean, go to two feet if you want. Make sure it's got shallows so that things can get in and get out. And there's more life in the shallows of a pond than there are in the depths. If you've got a three-foot-deep pond, there's nothing much living right down the bottom there at all. One or two amphibians might hibernate there, but most of them hibernate outside the pond. Um, you know, under stones and things like that. So um, it's, it's so easy with a decent liner that can't get perforated and a bit of underlay and a bit of soil on top of it and then you can either fill it or you can be very patient and wait for a rainy day. <laughs> it's so easy, it's as easy as that. How much fun can you have with ponds? My big thing about ponds is exactly that. And, and that, for me, is the essence of conservation. There tends to be a lot of finger-wagging in conservation terms and the onus is on you and it's a, it's a weighty responsibility. It is the greatest joy in life to do something which improves that nasty thing called the environment. I'm certain my life's work is to find a better word for environment. I like landscape, that's much nicer. Um, it is so joyous. You introduce children to gardening, to, and that's the sort of sharp end, if you like, of con conservation just dabbling around in the soil with a, a trowel, making a pond, looking at pond life, they are entranced by it. And there's far more, and I say this uh, someone who knows, far more to watch in a pond than there is on telly. So, ponds are easy to make, and they're more fun than watching TV. To find out more about the Million Ponds Project, I spoke to Jeremy Biggs, Policy and Research Director at Pond Conservation. Million Ponds Project is a five-year initiative to add about 4,000 new ponds to the countryside and in the longer term to double the number of ponds in the British landscape to get back to the million ponds or so that we had at the beginning of the 20th century. So over the next 50 years, we're going to make 500,000 new ponds to replace those old ones that we've lost. It sounds ambitious. Who's, who's going to help you do this? Well, there are all sorts of people making ponds. It's, it's actually not as ambitious as it sounds, I would say. When you look around the countryside, there's about 20 ponds a day being made by people already. So that's five or 6,000 a year. So actually, all we need to do really is just to capitalise on that work that they're already doing out there and make it a bit better and make them help people to get the best of their pond creation, the work they're already doing very often. The people who'll be doing it... Really, again, that's all kinds of people from big organisations like the RSPB, the National Trust, the Environment Agency, right through to individual landowners and land managers. People can even make ponds at home in their garden uh, as well. And what are the risks of not bringing back the ponds? How have we seen the environment change as a result of losing so many ponds? There are so many things that live in ponds. About two-thirds of, of all the kinds of freshwater plants and animals there are can be found in ponds. So if you lose those ponds, and in particular if when so many of them are damaged by pollution and other impacts. So there's about 80% which are in poor condition. When so many are damaged and degraded, it means just less, there's just less habitat available for a whole range of freshwater plants and animals, many of which have now become rare. Most of the things which need clean water are struggling nowadays. They, there's just nowhere left for them to go. So by putting back that clean water, we hope to kind of take the pressure off a bit, let things spread out again, just to, just to give them a refuge. And finally, tell me about your favourite pond. Well, I've got 
lots of favourite ponds, actually. To be honest, almost any pond which is clean and unpolluted has uh, rich stands of plants under the water. When you take your pond net, you dip it, you see lots of different kinds of animals in the water. There are loads of amphibians around. These are not so common these days, so almost anywhere where you see something like that, that's one of my favourite places. Of course, there are all sorts of these. That, you, know, you can see these dotted around the countryside still from, from the south of England, from the the Lizard Peninsula on the, in the far southwest, right through to the far northwest highlands of Scotland. You can find them dotted around. To be honest, those are really all my favourites. That's the lovely Alan Titchmarsh there, along with Jeremy Biggs from the charity Pond Conservation. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. Time for another kitchen science now. Again, a simple but highly effective, not to mention slightly silly experiment involving just drinking straws and potatoes. Dave explains more. Well, this week I've got a bit of challenge for you at home. All you'll need is a potato and possibly a few drinking straws, perfectly normal plastic drinking straws. Now, the challenge is that I want you to get the drinking straw as far as you can into the potato, essentially impaling it with using no special tools, no knives, no power drills, nothing like that. You've just got to get the straw in the potato just using your hands as far as you can. OK, let's just get Dr go. Cat to have a quick okay. go and see... Right. <laughs> okay, that was a success story. She has managed okay. to bend the straw without actually getting it. Hang on, I've got it. Oh, no, no, I've got it in a little bit. We're measuring that in millimetres, I think. So, Dave, <laughs> as, a, as a challenge, how far, if people are doing this really well, do you think they ought to be able to get the straw into the potato? You should definitely be able to get it in about an inch, if you're good, maybe two inches. <laughs> I've got half a centimetre. <laughs> so there you go, that can be improved on. It's a work in progress over there with Dr Cat. So basically, just summarise, Dave, what people have to do. Take a normal plastic drinking straw and a potato and try and get the drinking straw as far as you can into that potato using any means you like, which doesn't involve anything other than in your hands, the straw and the potato. After a few more fruitless and frankly pathetic attempts throughout the show, I finally gave up. So how do you impale a potato with a straw? Okay, let's find out how far Barry got his straw in. Hi, Barry. Hello there. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. Have you, are you straw and potato in hand? No, um, I demonstrated <laughs> this on a cruise ship a <laughs> couple of years ago. I won't ask what kind of cruises you go on, but what, what was your interpretation? What you've got to do is increase the rigidity of the straw. That's fairly basic. How do you do that? Well, with air pressure. If you hold the straw from the end you intend to stab into the potato, the diameter of the potato plus a quarter of an inch, and then with you know, lots of energy propel it into the potato, as it penetrates the potato, the air pressure will go up in the straw, therefore making it more rigid. And the further you go in, the more the air pressure increases. And at the last little bit, there's so much air pressure in there, it actually propels the slug of potato out the other side and the straw goes with it. Dave, what do you think? I'm not entirely sure whether you need the air pressure because it certainly works very well even if you don't plug the end of the straw and the straw's moving less than the speed of sound, so I doubt the air pressure is going to go up very much. Anyway, the general strategy is if you try and push the straw in very slowly, like Kat was trying earlier, it just breaks. But if you take a straw, and um, if you want to try this, Kat. Okay, yeah. Take my the straw, potato, got my straw. And hold it kind of gently, but firmly, but not distorting the straw at all. Gently, but firmly. Yeah. As it were, that kind of makes sense. And then try and stab it into the potato as straight as you can into a piece of potato which is at right angles the way you're stabbing it to. So you're going to get okay. a nice flat piece of potato. Flat and potato, straw, ready, one, two, three. Crikey! <laughs> that's actually pretty impressive. Does it come out the other side? It looks almost like no, it could have done. Let, let's pull it. Oh, gosh. Uh, that's about. What, two and a half inches? Well, good two inches anyway, yeah, I think. Crikey. So, <laughs> That's amazing. So, Dave, what's going on? Okay. Well, basically, a straw is a tube, and tubes are very, very strong as long as they're straight. So I, if you take a straw and try and squash it, as long as it stays straight, it's very, very strong. But as soon as it starts to bend, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker until eventually it buckles and fails and gets incredibly weak and just can't do anything at all. So basically, the straw to get in there, it wants to be as straight for as long as you can when it's going through that potato. Now, if you go slowly, it's got plenty of time to bend and buckle and fail. But if you go very quickly, it hasn't had time to buckle by the time it's gone all the way into the potato. Also, if you look at a straw, it's got a very, very small surface area, so it's a bit like a knife, so it cuts very easily. And if you go quickly, you're, it's a bit like cutting something with an axe. If you push slowly, it's, it doesn't go in very easily, but if you hit it quickly with an axe, it, you just, you're just cutting the very, very surface where the knife blade is. You're not spreading the force out at all, and it'll cut better. So go quickly. And it'll go I'd give well. Barry 9 out of 10, though, because he, he was right. He very, said you've got to increase the rigidity, so yeah. he was sort of on the, on the way to being completely right, wasn't he? Very, very good. Um, where does this apply in the real world, though? Because that's the key thing here, isn't it? 
Well, if you've ever looked at columns in buildings, if you look at things hanging in a big building, all the, the things which can do it can be very, very thin. They look like just weedy little bits of string, but they can hold up huge bits of building. But if you look at anything which is trying to fight a compression, like we were here, it's always got to be very wide. Because if you take something very narrow, it's very easy to bend, and once it starts bending, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker and buckles and fails. But if you, the wider it is, the stiffer it is, so it can't buckle, so it can't fail by compression. I wondered if you were going to say something about cars having crumple zones, because if you drive into something, cars are, are programmed. Met, metal, the metal is sort of pre-programmed, isn't it, to bend in a certain way and soak up the energy? Yeah, they're designed not to be stiff, not to be strong. So they already have little bits of failure, mo- place of a buckle it built in, so it breaks easily. And now for the first chapter in a new series we're introducing on the show over the summer called Chemistry and Its Element. In each episode, we'll be hearing from a chemist who's taken a look at the more sinister side of one of the elements that make up the periodic table. This week, it's the turn of UCL scientist Andrea Seller and the story of cretins, firecrackers and clean water. When I was a child, I used to spend a couple of weeks each summer high in the Italian Alps in an idyllic little village called Cogne that nestles quietly between high, ice-clad peaks. To most Italians, the name is associated with a sensational murder. Others know that in the winter, the valley has some of the finest ice climbing in the Alps. But to me, Cogne will always be connected with the element iodine. One afternoon, when I was around 10 years old, returning with my dad from a long hike, we passed a dull gray building on the edge of the village. It was surrounded by a tall metal fence and had an institutional look about it. Sitting on the bench, all on his own, was a strange-looking old man. He had rather shaggy hair, a vacant look, and a large, distended pouch of skin where his neck should have been. I was utterly shocked by this strange being. I pestered my father with questions. Who was he? What was wrong with him? Why did he look so sad? My father, whose patience in the face of a barrage of questions was almost infinite, explained that the poor man had grown up with insufficient iodine in his diet. Iodine, he went on, was essential for the proper development of the thyroid gland in the neck, and that if one didn't eat the right kind of salt, especially as a child, one might develop goiter, and one's mental development would also be affected. I would later read of English travellers passing through the Alps referring to the valleys of the Cretins. Travel books of the period would include lurid illustrations of the poor unfortunates. The numbers were staggering. The Napoleonic census of the canton of Valais in 1800 found 4,000 Cretins in a population of 70,000. The disease had been known to medical writers for centuries. Galen, for example, recommended treatment with marine sponges. Paracelsus, the great Renaissance healer, alchemist, and writer, was one of the first to spot the connection between goiter and cretinism and suggested that minerals in drinking water might play a role in causing the condition. But what these mysterious minerals might be was a mystery. In 1811, a young French chemist, Bernard Courtois, working in Paris, stumbled across a new element. His family's firm produced saltpeter needed to make gunpowder for Napoleon's wars. They used wood ash in their process, and wartime shortages of wood forced them instead to burn seaweed, plentiful on the coastlines of northern France. Adding concentrated sulfuric acid to the ash, Courtois obtained an unexpected purple vapor that crystallized onto the sides of the container. Astonished by this discovery, he bottled up the grayish crystals and sent them to one of the foremost chemists of his day, Joseph Gelussac, who confirmed that this was a new element and named it yod iodine, after the Greek word for purple. Courtois continued to play with the element and was rather shocked to discover that when he mixed it with ammonia, it produced a chocolate-colored solid, the ammoniate of nitrogen triiodide, that exploded violently at the least provocation. His contemporary, Pierre Dulon, was less fortunate, losing an eye and three fingers while studying the material, the first in a long list of casualties from this notorious substance. It's an extreme, touch-sensitive, detonating explosive. The explosion velocity is several kilometers per second. The sound is a wicked crack that rings in your ears for minutes afterwards. Have a listen. You play with it at your peril. Don't say you weren't warned. The toxic qualities of iodine were soon realized, and the tincture, a yellow-brown solution of iodine and alcohol, began to be widely used as a disinfectant. Even today, the most common water purification tablets one can buy in travel shops are based on iodine. It was only two years after its discovery that a doctor in Geneva, François Coindé, began to wonder whether it wasn't the iodine in the seaweed that was the missing mineral responsible for goiter. 
He therefore began administering tincture of iodine to his patients by mouth. An unpleasant business. But he reported it led to the disappearance of swellings in six to ten weeks. His colleagues, however, accused him of poisoning his patients, and at one point he was said to be unable to go into the streets for fear of being attacked. While elemental iodine undoubtedly was toxic, Coindé was on the right track. During the 19th century, by a process of one step forward, two steps back, the hypothesis gradually gained credence, as experiments using the more palatable salt potassium iodide showed that goiters could be reversed. By the early 1920s, Swiss cantons began to introduce iodized salt with remarkable results, and over the following decades, many countries that had been plagued by goiters followed suit. The policy has been so effective that many of us in the developed world are unaware of how serious a disease this had been, and the word cretin has lost much of its meaning. When I returned to Cogne last summer, I tried to remember where the Institute had been. All I could find was a summer holiday camp with children playing happily behind the gates where I'd seen the old man. I phoned my dad to ask him, and we chatted about the old days, the bad old days of the cretins, and of ghosts banished by that unique purple element, iodine. Thankfully, there's enough iodine in our diets these days to make Derbyshire Neck, the British equivalent of those alpine cretins you heard about there, a thing of the past. That was UCL chemist Andrea Seller with this week's Chemistry and Its Element, the story of iodine. We'll have another instalment for you next week when we'll meet the flesh-devouring chemical that's cost many chemists their lives, and that's fluorine. Meanwhile, if you'd like to hear more of the stories of the elements that make up the world around us, then do take a look at the Royal Society of Chemistry's website, which is at chemistryworld.org elements. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. I'm Kat Arney, and you're listening to my favourite bits of The Naked Scientists. Back to the news now, and a romantic tale of mosquito love. People with sensitive ears may want to turn away now because you can almost hear me squirming in the background. Here's Dr Chris to explain more. This week, scientists have published a paper in the journal Science where they have found out how mosquitoes tell each other that they fancy one another. Now have a listen to this. That is a male mosquito buzzing its wings at something like 600 hertz, 600 times a second. Have a listen to the female mosquito, and these are Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. Here we go. Now, I won't subject you to too much more because Dr. Cat Cat has got her fingers in her ears. But that's at about 400 hertz, so 400 times a second. The female is slightly slower than the males. But if you do what two researchers at Cornell did, that's Lauren Cater and Ben Arthur, they put one of those mosquitoes tethered to a pin with a piece of superglue so they could keep it in one place, and they bring in a mosquito of the opposite sex and they record what happens to the wings of the two. Have a listen to this. Now, what's actually happening is that the two mosquitoes are adapting the beating frequency of their wings so that they harmonise. Now, they're not making their wings flap at exactly the same rate as each other. The female stays at her roughly 400 times a second rate, and the male stays at his roughly 600 times. But by getting them just right, because when you have multiples of a frequency, you get things called harmonics. And the first set of harmonics that are the same for these two are at 1,200 hertz. In other words, when you take the third harmonic of the female and the second harmonic of the male, you get something at 1,200 hertz. That's those beats you can hear going through that uh, rhythm. And the mosquito's antennae are very sensitive, it turns out, to vibration at 1,200 hertz. They have something called a Johnston's organ, and what this team of researchers did was to put wires into these mosquitoes' antennae and record what actually happened when they heard those sounds, and the activity shoots up. And so the mosquitoes tune into each other, synchronise their wing beats to send a message to each other that one is interested in the other, and then they know that they can mate, they get together and mate, and then when they have mated, something happens to the female because she loses interest in those sounds after that, and the researchers were able to show that once a mosquito was mated, she would no longer respond at those 
those sounds. And this is very important, the researchers point out, because now we understand, in the words of Lauren Cater, partly what constitutes a sexy male mosquito, because what they're trying to do is to understand the mating habits of mosquitoes, because at the moment mosquitoes are probably the most dangerous animal on Earth because they spread one of the most fearsome diseases of all time, that's malaria, which affects 300 million people a year and also causes 3 million deaths. They also, if they're Aedes aegypti, like these mosquitoes, they spread another disease called dengue, which is causing 50 or 60 million cases a year. So very important diseases. If we can understand how mosquitoes attract and mate with each other, we can try and make ways of blocking that process and therefore stopping them from transmitting these kind of infections. So very important work. And one of the things I think is most fascinating about that paper is that previously researchers had just thought these mosquitoes were actually deaf, that males couldn't hear high frequencies and, and female mosquitoes were totally tone deaf. And now they've discovered not only can they hear, but, you know, they can tune into each other. And so they can also hear up to 2,000 freak, uh, hertz. So their antennae are very, very sensitive. And in fact, as uh, Lauren Cater put it to me, um, there are as many nerves that the mosquitoes are using to effectively hear with their antennae as we've got in our ears. So amorous mosquitoes tune into each other. How romantic. Anyway, moving on swiftly, as a special treat for me and Dr Chris, whose birthdays both fall in the same week in January, Ben and Dave cooked up a special birthday kitchen science involving some yummy and some not-so-yummy jelly for us. Here's Ben with a severe case of the wobbles. Hello and welcome to this week's Kitchen Science, where because it's Dr Chris's birthday this week, happy birthday Chris, we have decided that we will make some Kitchen Science party food. Now of course Dave couldn't resist the chance to do an experiment with some party food, so Dave, what have you done and will it still be edible? It should be entirely edible, so if you want to do this at home, you can eat it afterwards, that's fine. What we're going to do is make some jelly, or for those more American-minded of you, jello, and we're going to chuck in some different fruit and see what happens. This doesn't really sound like an experiment so far, it just sounds like making party food, but what fruit have you brought with you? For a selection of fruit, I've got some apple, some orange, some kiwi, some pineapple and some tin pineapple. OK, well this all sounds very delicious so far. Uh, is there anything special about the jelly that you're using? No, just bog-standard jelly from a supermarket, made up as the directions suggest. I'm going to pour it over the chopped-up fruit and leave it in the fridge for a couple of hours to set. We have one with apple, one with orange, one with kiwi fruit, one with tinned pineapple and one with fresh pineapple. And, of course, we're doing one with no fruit whatsoever. So why do you think this is worthy of kitchen science? Well, you may have heard that you shouldn't make jelly using some fruits, so I thought we'd do an experiment to find out which. So what happened to our special birthday jellies? Dave and Ben revealed the answer later in the show. Dave, there's a strong smell of lemon jelly in here. It all looks very delicious. We really should save it until we see Chris, but as this is an experiment, we should make sure that it's all OK, shouldn't we? I think testing is important in these kind of situations. So uh, here we go, Chris. We're putting us on the line for your birthday party food. So, Dave, which one are you going to try first? Well, we did one with no fruit in it at all as a control, so if we test that one... Well, it looks like perfect jelly, really. It's firm. It's, in fact, I shall have a bit myself. It's firm. It's set properly. It's, uh, it's very lemony. It's very good. Excellent. So uh, we know that the jelly on its own is perfectly good for Chris's party. So what's the next one? Try some orange. OK. So lemon jelly with orange. I'm not sure if the flavour combination is the best, but they're both sort of citrusy, so let's see how they work. It's set very nicely. If we can fight our way around a piece of orange there, and let's try that one. That's a very nice combination, actually. Yes, that's very good. OK, that's another one for Chris's party table. Shall we have a go at the apple? Yeah, why not? Once again, it's set firm. And the apple is still quite crunchy. That's delicious. That's a very good combination. So we only have three left to try. We have tinned pineapple, kiwi fruit, and fresh pineapple. So let's try the fresh pineapple. Dave, that hasn't set at all. No, it hasn't. It's still entirely liquid, probably more liquid than when I poured it into the container. It's quite pleasant, although certainly not jelly. I'm sure half the point of jelly is the fact that it's firm and wobbly on a spoon. Maybe we should try the tinned pineapple and see how that is. OK, so they've all been in the fridge exactly the same amount of time, and here we've got the tinned pineapple. And this one has set perfectly well. So far, we know we can use the apple, the orange, the plain jelly, and the tinned pineapple jellies. We have the kiwi fruit to try. And this one's all runny as well. This one, again, it hasn't worked at all. It's obviously a lot greener than the others, but it hasn't set. So fresh pineapple and kiwi don't set. Yes, that's what I expect, because in pineapple, there's an enzyme called bromelain, and in kiwi fruit, there's another enzyme called actinidin, 
both of which are what are called proteases. This means that they'll chop up proteins. So is jelly made of protein in that case? Is that why it sets? Yes, the wobbly part of jelly is basically very long proteins called gelatin. They're all long strands, and when you let them cool down, they tangle up with each other, forming a great big tangly mess. And so it won't flow anymore. However, if you put a protease in there, it gets chopped up into much shorter strands, and they're not long enough to tangle, so it won't form a jelly. But the tinned pineapple was fine. So what's going on there? Well, when you heat up these protease enzymes, they get destroyed and become non-functional anymore. So they'll no longer chop up the gelatin. And so tinned pineapple has at some point been cooked and these enzymes have broken down? Yes, if you want to can something, you've got to kill all the bacteria inside it. So you basically got to cook it to kill everything inside the tin. Otherwise, it will ferment gently and tins start exploding. But why do we find these enzymes in kiwifruit and pineapple in the first place? Well, you do find enzymes which will chop up proteins in small quantities in almost all fruits and, in fact, anything living. However, it seems that kiwifruit and pineapple have used this as a defence mechanism. They produce lots and lots of protease enzymes which will eat anything which tries to eat them. So if an insect sort of burrows in and tries to eat the pineapple, it'll get eaten itself and won't get very far. All of a sudden, you've made pineapple and kiwi seem rather vicious. Don't these enzymes attack me whenever I eat them? Yeah, they do. You may have noticed if you eat too much pineapple or too many kiwi fruit, your mouth actually starts to get all red and painful. That's because the protease enzymes are dissolving your, your mouth and start breaking it down, so it starts to hurt. So why don't we find this in an orange or an apple? Well, they've just developed different mechanisms to avoid being eaten by insects. Of course, no party of mine would be complete without a bit of dancing. And it seems that no series of The Naked Scientists is going to escape without a boogie either. In October, we spoke to Dr Peter Lovett from the University of Hertfordshire, who explained why it's important to study dancing, accompanied by an absolutely hilarious demonstration by Ben. Even if it didn't come across that well on the radio, it was certainly my highlight of the year by a long way. Here's Peter to explain more. Well, because there's a very clear relationship between people's level of testosterone and their what's called their genetic quality and the way in which they dance. Now, it's thought to be that dancing might be, as Darwin suggested, um, some kind of courtship ritual so that like other birds and other animals, we might display ourselves in a particular way to find a mate which is compatible with us. Now, of course, that's not very, so it is quite scientific, but it becomes more scientific when you, when you realise that the way in which we move might be determined by both our level of prenatal testosterone and also by our physical symmetry. That, that is, how physically symmetrical we are in terms of our ears and our, and our, our fingers and our knees and our, and our ankles and things. So how does that work then? Well, two earlier studies have shown that they asked men to dance. So they got guys into a lab, they filmed them dancing, and then blurred the images out so you couldn't see anything at all about the physical attributes of the men at all. And then these, men, um, these videos were shown to a large group of women. And women were asked to rate which movements were the most attractive and dominant um, and masculine. And what they found is that the movements of men who had high levels of prenatal testosterone or men who had higher levels of physical symmetry were rated as more attractive, more dominant and more uh, masculine than the dances of uh, the opposite men. Does this mean that some people then are basically born dancers? Well, what, it's, what it suggested, according to, to the original researchers, was that the testosterone um, has a, an organising effect on body movement. So men don't even know that they're high or low testosterone, men, but it, it influences how they move. So it might influence um, their level of coordination in, in, in terms of their movements, or might influence their natural rhythm and how the different parts of the bodies move together. Uh, we know there's loads of programmes on, on TV here at the moment that, you know, strictly come dancing and tap dance your way to success or whatever they're called. <laughs> um, can people actually really learn to dance well or is there always going to be this genetic barrier to it? Well, I think that people can, can, can learn. I, I think they really can learn. Now, it might well be the case that your, your genetic makeup might predetermine the range of your dancing ability. So it might organise you to, to suggest that you're more rhythmic or you might use more complex movements. But, of course, then we, we can teach people then um, a different wider range of movements or a set of movements that might make them appear more dominant or more attractive. Well, we're going to try this experiment live now. <laughs> Are you ready for this, Peter? Because we, we have our, our dancing monkey here. <laughs> We have Ben Valsler, who's going to do some dancing I am more than happy to dance. Yes, Peter, I know that at the moment you are running a survey online and I've watched your video about the different styles of dancing and you want people to let you know sort of 
classify their dancing and let you know how uh, how they dance. Yeah. Now, we will put a link to this from thenakedscientist.com so people that listen to the show can join in. But I think it's only fair that, seeing as Kat hasn't seen the video, yeah. that, that I demonstrate for her in the studio. I so, cannot wait. <laughs> so, Peter, please could you describe to Kat the sort of movements that we're looking for, and uh, I will do the movements for you. Here so we go. run the music. Okay. Here we go. Well, the first of the movement is to just step from one foot to the next foot. So you're stepping right and touching left, right, left. stepping left and touching. The normal kind of disco move that you see at disco. Yeah, like it's what I did like at that. school. Yeah. Exactly. Now keep that quite small. Quite and small, yeah. Keep the top half of the body doing the same as the bottom half of the body. Now, this looks brilliant. <laughs> but that is the most unattractive dance that men could do. You're telling me. <laughs> now what you can do now, if you keep doing that, that same thing with your feet, but do something different with your shoulders. Roll your shoulders backwards slightly and move your arms up and move your elbows around a little bit. So now, Ben's now doing kind of a, a dancing like your dad kind of dance. Ooh, well, that with could, your... could be bad. But as long as the top half is doing something different to the bottom half and he's in time with the music and there's some rhythm going on. It's looking like that, yep. Yep. Now, if there's rhythm going on and he's coordinated, then that would be a lot more attractive to women, apparently. <laughs> now, if the top half of his body was a bit more random, then it wouldn't be quite so attractive. So yeah, he's what, doing some very random things with his arms, over the head, swimming uh, motions. Now, that's interesting. If he's doing all that, that might be a bit too big, you see, because the bigger the movements are, the more dominant they're seen by, by people. Now, they're OK if they're large movements, but they're nicely coordinated movements and unthreatening, then they could be seen to be um, quite attractive and quite masculine. If they get too big and too random movements, then those ones are seen as highly dominant, but highly unattractive. So we've got the hands waving over the head now, sort no, of we, windmill we style. Yeah, he's not going to attract their mates that way, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm taking up most of the studio, I think. <laughs> I really wish the webcam was working. This is great. <laughs> are there any other moves we can try and get Ben to do, or is that the, the repertoire? Um, yeah, well, make, make the side to side a bit bigger. So now the step, you've got quite small steps, but make, make them bigger. So step about a metre from side to side. Yeah, it's like the Hulk dancing yeah, exactly, here. Exactly, yeah. And now get the arms really swinging out wide. It's like he's doing aerobics. That's right, a bit like a star jump. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now that again is, is, is that, 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 well, what he's doing now is making his movements a lot more dominant. Um, it's not attractive. It's not, is it? <laughs> no. Now, it's interesting you say that because some women do find it attractive, and the ones who do are the, are the younger women. So women, sort of 16 to 18, 19 year olds, often find those movements quite attractive. So for any of our teenage listeners out there, Ben is now the man of your dreams. He might well be, because he might be. Now, obviously, it's a bit, bit too stylized at the moment. What he needs to do is put a bit more randomness into it. More randomness? Yeah, that's fair. Ooh, he's doing waving now, with his arms now. Can you to think about being a hip-hop dancer? Be a hip-hop dancer, big, Ben. Kind of big hip-hop dancing. Yeah, he's got some hip-hop moves, a bit of arm crossing. Are you, are you doing a little sign with your hands there? Yeah, he's good, doing good, some good. hand <laughs> signs. <laughs> now, all those movements are making him much more obvious on the dance floor. So as you're seeing those, those movements, <laughs> you're much more likely to see him. And as long as he's not too threatening, the younger girls would, would go for those kind of moves. So they'd be impressed with the hip-hop moves. They would be. There you yeah. go, Ben. Next time you're down the teenage disco. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the final thing I'd really like to know is, yeah. we, all your studies seem to have focused on, on men dancing. And in yeah. my experience, men don't dance that well. well um, is, is, it, is this really true that a girl's better dancers than men? Is, is there any truth well, in that? The reason, actually, well, what we've done, you see, we've just, on, on the survey we've got online at the moment, what we're finding is that women are rating themselves as much better dancers than men. Of course. They've got to self-rate. But the problem is so many girls have had some kind of formal dance training, even if it's only a few years in jazz, tap or ballet when they're much younger, whereas men often don't have formal dance training. And so when we're looking at the dance, the kind of natural dance, the, the real sort of dance that's coming out of their genes, it's easier to spot that in men because they're less contaminated by training. Ah, so men could be naturally more uh, proficient dancers. Yeah, now a lot of men, men they're, they're very good actually, a lot of them. As long as they relax a little bit more, um, they, 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 you really see some fantastic moves in men. Even if they're not sort of formally recognisable moves, you really see some great rhythm happening in men. Are you much of a dancer yourself as well? Well, I was a professional dancer before I became a psychologist. <laughs> What's your favourite type of dance? Oh, well now I don't know. Also, I do everything. I do jazz, tap, ballet, ballroom, contemporary, everything I can do. I love to dance. Dan dancing is wonderful. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, so your, your videos are going to be available on the Naked Scientist website. And how long are you conducting this experiment for? Well, we want it to go for as long as we possibly can, really. Well, with the, the survey at the moment, we want to find out how good people think they are at dancing. And then we want to find out what sort of movements are best characterised by their, their dancing. What we found is that men under the age of 25, their level of testosterone predicts how good a dancer they will say they are. So high testosterone men say they're good dancers. Low testosterone men are bad dancers. In the over 25s, the pattern goes away. 
but the men are still very good. We want to know what sort of movements men are using at all different ages through their life. Well, I'm all partied out here, so it's time to say thanks to Dr Chris and the team for a great year, and I'll be back again in the autumn. Next week, Helen Scales will be here to take you through all of her favourite bits, so expect plenty of oceanic interest, as Helen's a rather aptly named marine biologist. We'll be hearing how sharks can smell underwater, why robots are great for discovering more about marine currents, and the impact we're having on the world's oceans. In the meantime, you can listen to previous shows, browse our kitchen science and sporrant science videos, and get stuck into the scientific discussions on the forum. That's all at www.thenakedscientist.com. Goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.